The message I'm going to share this morning really follows on from the last two weeks, from Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, as some of you will see if you were here then. Uh, but really, the inspiration for it came from uh, the beginning of Easter week. I'm sure many of you saw on the news the uh, fire that took place at Notre Dame uh, Cathedral. And uh, it kind of sent shockwaves really around the world. It wasn't just the Parisians or the French who were devastated by this, but actually people all over the world were in mourning because of seeing this iconic uh, building that stood for centuries going up in uh, flames. And uh, certainly for my wife Emma and I, myself, like many others, I mean, we, went, we had our honeymoon in Paris, and so we got photographs, honeymoon photographs from Notre Dame. Um, but it was the next morning I saw on my Twitter feed the first photo to be shown from inside the cathedral uh, that next day. And what it showed there, what it revealed, was this golden, uh, gleaming cross. That was the first picture the next morning uh, that just stood there um, as a symbol of hope, if you want, that not all was lost. At least that's what the newspapers kind of picked up on. Uh, but the thing that, that really seemed fitting to me you know, in the midst of all the smoke and the debris and the blackened kind of uh, statues of saints and relics and so on was that the cross was the thing that stood out, gleaming, shining, untarnished, this powerful symbol of hope as it has been for centuries. And I really felt God impress upon me that in the spiritual darkness of our society today, you know, as we consider um, the, the many, many people uh, who have experiencing brokenness in their relationships and in their families, the millions of people who are living lives of quiet desperation, that in the midst of that darkness, God is calling us, He's calling His people, His church, to shine with the light of the cross. Um, that we've been called to stand out as beacons of hope in our society today. But that will only happen as our own lives are being transformed by the cross. That we are called to live cross-shaped lives. I think the technical term is cruciform. Uh, we're to live cruciform lives. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. And then next week we'll look at a cruciform community. Okay? Now, what do I mean by that? Well, we're going to let Jesus speak to this from some dialogue that he had with his disciples in Mark's Gospel. And it starts in Mark chapter 8 onwards. Uh, it's where Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. He's begun his journey towards the cross. And in this second half of Mark's Gospel, the whole narrative is really overshadowed by the cross. And it's on that journey that three times Jesus tells his disciples that he is going to suffer, he's going to be killed, but in three days 
he will rise again. Three times is what we is what's known as the passion uh, predictions. But each time he said that, he is confronted by worldly thinking from his disciples that he has to correct. Because not only was it absolutely necessary for him to go to the cross, it was also absolutely necessary for his followers to embrace the cross as well, if they were going to follow him in his mission. So let's take a look at it now. We're going to start from Mark chapter 8 and verse 31. This is the first time that he gives this prediction. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And Jesus spoke plainly about this. But but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine Peter must have been saying, no, what are you talking about, Jesus? No, no, the Messiah is going to come in power, and he's going to crush our enemies. What Bible are you reading? He's not going to suffer and die. He's going to triumph and rule. Verse 33, it says, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is human thinking. This is worldly thinking. It's devilish thinking, right? This is what got mankind into trouble in the first place. This is how things got messed up, right? Man taking control. Man wanting to be God. Verse 34 says, Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. This is God's way. This is the way of the cross. But it's the opposite to the way that man thinks. Which is why, if you try to talk this way, people will often uh, correct you, as Peter tried to correct Jesus. They'll say, no, 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 that's wrong. No, no, you need to love yourself. Right? You need to find yourself. Be true to yourself. Fulfill yourself. Be your best self. Jesus says... Deny yourself. Deny self. And it's not just talking about denying yourself some luxuries like Cadbury's chocolate um, or giving up Facebook for Lent, right? The verb that's used here is the same verb that Peter used when he denied Jesus three times. Peter said, I don't know the man. Peter disowned him, turned his back on him. And so for us, it means turning our back on self. It means I no longer go my way where everything revolves around me, and instead I choose to go God's way where everything revolves around Jesus. 
It means self has to die, right? I turn my back on self, right? I deny myself. It's like, sorry, do I know you? That's what it means. That's what Jesus is implying when he says that following him means to take up our cross. Now today, when people talk about um, having a cross to bear, they usually are referring to having to put up with some hardship or inconvenience, right? Like uh, an irritable husband or your mother-in-law or maybe uh, a health issue. Oh, it's my cross to bear. In the first century, when someone was carrying a cross, it only meant one thing. Death. Death. That's what it meant. And when Mark was writing this, these words would have had a particular relevance to the Christians he was writing to because it was during the reign of the Roman Emperor Nero and at that time he was blaming the Christians for setting fire to Rome and was having them crucified. So for many Christians, including those today living in places like Sri Lanka, right, where, as we've seen, persecution can be very real. Following Jesus there can lead to actual physical death. But for Christ followers, as we heard last week uh, from PJ, uh, death is just a shadow. As he quoted uh, John Milton saying, death is the golden key that opens the palace of eternity. Right? For those wanting to follow Jesus, death has lost its sting because Jesus has already gone before us and has conquered death and made a way for us to follow. Amen? But in order for us to follow him there, we have to first die to self. All right? That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's not just talking about those who might be martyred for their faith. He says, anyone, right, whosoever would come after me, all right? And so if you want to follow Jesus into eternity, the starting point is death to self. That's what baptism represents when we baptize people in water, right? That old self, that inner person, that inner self has to die so that in the words of Jesus, we can be born again. We can be spiritually reborn. A couple of weeks ago, I was in the most terrible pain uh, with my back tooth, and uh, it was just horrific pain. And I tried uh, all kinds of medication to try and numb it. didn't work. Um, it was over the weekend. I was in Brooklyn and uh, came back, made an emergency appointment to see the dentist, and so I went along hoping that they would be able to fix it, you know, maybe fill a cavity or something. And they took x-rays, he looked at it and said, no, uh, no, you're going to need a root canal. And, but I can start it for you right now. And I said, no, I don't want a root canal. I can't afford a root canal. This has got to come out and it's going to happen soon. And so they sent me to somewhere where they do extractions and... As the guy is pulling my tooth, he says to me, this tooth is fractured at its root. That's why you've been in so much pain. 
And he said, if you had had a root canal, it would have been a waste of time and money because this tooth could not have been fixed. This had to come out, uh, which thankfully it did. All right? Now, that is the Bible's diagnosis for mankind. Fractured at our roots, at our very core, cannot be fixed. It's what Jesus, in his love and compassion, is speaking to us about in all of our pain. And I'll give you the words of C.S. Lewis, uh, what Jesus would say to us. I was reminded of this when I was thinking about my tooth. As you'll see, it's from Mere Christianity, his classic book. C.S. Lewis says this, The Lord is saying to us, I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. And I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. Jesus did not come to make us feel better or to fill a hole in our lives. He came to give us a whole new life. He came to deliver us from the sentence of death right, and give us an eternal life that can only be found in him as the one who's gone before us. That's why he says here in verse 35, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. He's saying if you try to cling on to your life, onto your, your very being, and you live for yourself as the thing that matters most to you in this world, more than living for Jesus, then you will lose both Jesus and yourself. Because there are eternal consequences to that. But, the one who forsakes self in order to live for Jesus and to follow him will find in him their eternal being, their real self, the self that God created us to be. And that's why, as Lewis says, following Jesus is both the hardest thing and the easiest thing that we can do. Right? It's hard because it means handing over our whole self to him. But it's easy because it's Jesus who does it all. Right? He works a miracle in our lives. He says, I will give you myself. Your, my will will become your will. As we put our lives into his hands, as we surrender ourselves, as we surrender everything to him, then his own spirit, the Holy Spirit, comes to live in us, making us eternal beings and empowering us to live for him. All right? I want to ask you, have you done that yet? Have you done that? Have you surrendered your whole self? You've given your whole life to Jesus. Maybe you've come to a place of faith where you've, you believe in him. Maybe you've been considering this even since last week. Have you come to that place yet where you said, yes, Jesus, I want to put my whole life into your hands? You baptized Josh here just 
on Good Friday. And uh, he went down into that baptism pool and came up knowing that he was going to be different. He, it was a surrender to Jesus. That's what he said, right? Growing up your whole life in a Christian home, knowing about Jesus, but there came a point when he knew he wanted to surrender his whole life to Christ. And he declared that in baptism. Have you done that yet? You can do that today. In your heart, you can do that. In prayer today. And walk out of here knowing, knowing that you've been changed for eternity. But, as we all follow Jesus through this life, right, it continues to be both hard and easy. And it's hard because this denying of self and taking up our cross is actually a daily thing. Right? In fact, Jesus makes that explicit, doesn't he? In Luke chapter 9, he says, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It means having died to self, that we have to daily put to death that old way of thinking, that old, the old way of behaving that used to be focused on me, on, on my self-fulfillment, on self-gratification, on getting my way, you see? And now my focus is on Christ. It's on living for him. It's following his ways. It's following him and his mission. And that's made easier because we have his spirit inside of us to help us to do that. But I'll come back to that at the, at the end, okay? Let's just see how the disciples have been getting on while I've been speaking, all right? Let's see how they've been getting on with following Jesus because Jesus has explained to them what it looks like to follow him. And he's made it very clear it means denying self. So did they get it? All right? Let's look at the second time he predicts his death. All right? This is in Mark chapter 9. They're still on the road to Jerusalem and Jesus is teaching them. Verse 31, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, Jesus asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Well, no doubt, knowing this, Jesus sat down and called the twelve and said this. Anyone who wants to be first, you want to be great? You must be the very last and the servant of all. Jesus has told his disciples twice he's going to die. He's going to be killed. Twice he's told them that, right? You would think, wouldn't you? the disciples would have shown some concern for him. I mean, at least ask some questions. It says they were afraid to ask questions. They probably maybe thought they were going to get rebuked like Peter. They'd, they'd learned from that. But what it shows us is they're more concerned about their own well-being than Jesus's, right? And not only that, but they're arguing about who was the greatest, they're seeking recognition. They're seeking honor for themselves. We've got Jesus talking about self-sacrifice. We've got the disciples talking about self-fulfillment. Right? They are completely at odds. Now, look, 
let's just give them the benefit of the doubts, all right? Jesus has now made it clear that in his kingdom, it's not about serving yourself, it's about serving others. That's true greatness, which is good news, according to Dr. Martin Luther King, because he said, that means everybody can be great, because anybody can serve, right? So they've been told. Now let's see if they've got it this time. Let's read the third time that Jesus predicts his death. This is in Mark chapter 10, and this is from verse 32. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they're going to condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. He's, going, he's making this very clear to them, right? He's going into some detail here. And then three days later, he will rise. Right, have they got it? What's the disciples' response? It says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus and I would not have replied like this. <laughs> what do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Isn't it incredible? This would be funny if it wasn't so tragic, wouldn't it? The contrast here between the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, and the way of the world is pretty dramatic. It's like two different languages being spoken. Completely different spirits. You've got James and John here wanting to sit on thrones of power and glory. You've got Jesus over here on his way to hang on a cross in absolute weakness and shame. You've got James and John with their request, which is totally self-centered, isn't it? Self-serving, self-fulfilling. They want position. They want recognition. They want their dreams fulfilled. They want their best life now. The total antithesis of Jesus, who did not consider his position in heaven as something to be held onto, but made himself nothing, and came to serve others, giving up his life for us on the cross. What side of the equation are you on? Because there is no middle ground. These two views are diametrically opposed to one another. Now, we might be tempted to laugh at the audacity of these two brothers, or maybe we'd be shocked at what they said. We're told the other disciples were indignant, but that's probably because they harbored similar ambitions, right? Perhaps we can forgive them. Perhaps they've not really understood yet what the cross was all about. But here we are, okay, on the other side of the cross where we have a much better understanding because we've got it in God's word 
telling us what Jesus had come to do, and yet how many of us can find ourselves harboring a similar attitude, a self-centered, self-serving attitude as James and John here. And it's so easy, isn't it, to become focused on ourselves, on fulfilling our desires and our dreams, on getting what we want, pursuing our own happiness, maybe even at the expense of others. And of course, our culture is just feeding that thinking all the time, isn't it? Right? You deserve better. You deserve better. Right? Follow your dream. Not follow Jesus. Follow your dream. And so we come to believe that actually Jesus exists for me to realize my dream, to do what I want. Maybe, like James and John, what you want is recognition. You want to be noticed. And again, our culture, it just, it just feeds that preoccupation with self. I mean, just think about the rise of the selfie. That should tell us something, right? That should tell us something. I mean, how many people on Instagram are constantly taking pictures of themselves? And I'm one of them. All right, even in the dentist chair, I took a picture on Instagram of myself. Oh, thank you, Becca. Between two services, she went and looked for it and then posted it. Thank you. Even in the dentist hey, look, look at me. I think if James and John had had iPhones, they probably would be doing the same thing. You know, hey, Jesus, come here. Hey, look at us. Hey. But it's that same attitude, you see, that's creating the iChurch. Right? So many are looking for a church that is centered around them, that meets their needs and their preferences, where it's all about me as the consumer. And of course, the seeker-friendly movement of about 20 years ago only helped to encourage that. Uh, listen to author Brett McCracken in his book, Uncomfortable. He says... Uh, Admirably evangelistic, this approach resulted in huge numbers and growth for many churches. I mean, who doesn't want to attend a church with a single-origin Ethiopian Yurgachev coffee, U2-sounding rock music, and TED Talk-caliber preaching can be experienced in under one hour? Buddy says, shorn of meaty theology and the cruciform cost of following Jesus, the seeker-sensitive ethos emphasize your best life now, self-help, that Soul Church is little more than a family-friendly support group and a social club full of Hollister-wearing teenagers driving Audis. Sorry if you're a Hollister-wearing teenager, all right? Uh, he's, he's from California, right? He's got a little jaded. Um, yet, it, it says, framing Christianity as a product to be sold to a customer who is always right, is disingenuous to the actual call of Christ and deadly to the prospects of a thriving, transformative, gospel-witnessing church community. And he's right. He's right. True transformation can only come through the cross. And that's why the call of Christ is to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. 
right? Because that's where hope is ultimately found. It's actually where all our dreams are realized. It's where our best life lies before us. Because as we've been seeing, death to self is not the end of the story. Death is followed by resurrection, right? The old life is replaced by the new. Present loss leads to eternal gain, right? The way up is down. That is the way of the cross. It's the way of the cross. So then, what does it look like for us all to deny self and take up cross? Well, Jesus goes on to tell his disciples again in this passage where he warns them against taking power and glory for themselves like James and John were trying and like the rest of the world does. This is what he says, verse 43. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here, Jesus gives us the pattern for the cruciform life. Listen to uh, James Edwards in his commentary on Mark's Gospel where he talks about this. Commenting on this, he says this, Service to others is the primary way in which believers imitate and fulfill the mission of Jesus. Right? That's what it means to follow Jesus, serving others. And then he says the posture of a servant is a visible manifestation of God's love. The preeminence of service in the kingdom of God grows out of Jesus' teaching on love for one's neighbor. For service is love made tangible. Right? Service is love made tangible. It's what love looks like, serving others. He says the desire for power and dominance, as expressed by James and John there, focuses attention on self and this kills love. For love by nature is focused on others. I think that's really helpful there. Because, you know, when my focus is on myself, thinking about myself, talking about myself, right, focused on my wants, my needs, getting my way, right, then I just add to the darkness and the brokenness that's in the world. I just add to it, right? It kills love. Focus on self kills love. Kills it. It kills love. But when our focus is on serving others, okay, not not to get recognition, not to get something back, not to meet a need that's within me, right? But serving others with the love of Christ and for the sake of Christ, then we bring light and hope and healing into this world. That's what the cruciform life looks like. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's the way of the cross, right? We, when we die to self, it's because we're serving others with the love of Christ. That's how we die to self, is by serving others 
with the love of Christ. Right? That's the way of the cross. It's a life of sacrificial love in service of others. That's why I love to serve our neighbors over at Gosling Meadows. Okay? Because um, I know how self-absorbed I can become when left to myself. Even standing up here, serving the church, preaching, there's a temptation to do it for praise and recognition. I don't get that at Gosley Meadows. I'm just there to love our neighbors. And I want to thank everyone who came out yesterday morning uh, to for the one day to serve, uh, beautifying the neighborhood over there. Great to see so many people from our church mix in with residents and the children there uh, to clean up uh, the community. Uh, thank you to all those who are going to be serving this week uh, over at House of Hope in Berwick and Summersworth uh, with uh, Sam and Marlene serving the dinners there this week. Uh, thank you uh, for serving our communities in this way. Thank you for those of you who are in the community groups. I just heard a story in between meetings. I'm, I'm not going to name names, but uh, Henry told me the story about someone in need uh, needing a tire replaced and couldn't get it done. And others in the group just stepping up. All they wanted was a used tire, but they got them a brand new tire and sorted out the situation, serving one another in that way. Uh, it's so encouraging to hear that. Right? If you profess to follow Jesus and you recognize in yourself the spirit of the world, the spirit of James and John, right? can I encourage you to take some steps this week to change that? Even today, can I encourage you to take some steps to change that by intentionally and sacrificially seeking to serve others in love? Can I encourage you to do that? To be thinking, as I'm going to close now, to be thinking about who that might be, what that might look like for you, all right? Because I'm just going to give you some hints to draw this to a close about what that kind of love might look like, all right? So be thinking as I say this. First of all, love is a commitment. Love is a commitment. It's not primarily a feeling as the world portrays it. Biblical love is first and foremost a commitment. True love is a commitment. We choose to love by serving the other, right? So Paul writes to husbands, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. As Christ loved the church. How did he do that? Gave up his life for her. Husbands, love your wives in the same way. It's a commitment to sacrificially serve your spouse and to be focused on her needs. Scott McKnight says, Commitment does not deny emotions. Commitment reorders emotions. Commitment does not deny emotions. Commitment reorders emotions. Commitment comes first. Emotions follow. And of course, that doesn't just apply to those who are married, those with spouses. I mean, it's the same commitment you make to your children, to your parents, to your friends. It's for better or for worse. Secondly, love is vulnerable. Love is vulnerable. C.S. Lewis understood this. 
Listen to what he says. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. It's vulnerable for a foster family to love a child. It's vulnerable to speak to a friend about a damaging pattern of behavior you see in their life. It's vulnerable to speak up against racism or homophobia or abortion and to be an advocate for the dignity that God has placed in every single human being. Love is vulnerable. It's risky. Thirdly, love means being present. Jesus came from heaven to earth to be present with us. That's how much he identified with us. It means being present with people. Jesus didn't send a selfie from heaven. He didn't send a, you know, a message through messenger. He came himself in person, identifying with us. What it means for us then is spending time with people. Right? We're not talking about text exchanges, but sitting down face to face, maybe over coffee or over a meal, talking to someone, listening to them, uh, you know, switching off your phone, uh, giving them your undivided attention. Put that one in there for me, right? But we all do it. It's being present. It means getting involved in their pain, in their lives. Listen, it takes time. It's inconvenient. Right? But love is present. That's what Jesus did for us, isn't it? So identified with us. And then lastly, love costs. It costs to love like this, doesn't it? It costs to love someone the way that Christ has loved us when he gave his life for us. It costs to accept people as they are, but to not let them stay there. It costs to walk with someone through their battles and struggles and keep urging them to go onwards. It costs when you see a need and you're prompted to meet that need, even if it means you going without. It costs to forgive someone who has hurt you, doesn't it? And it costs to follow Jesus when he says in Luke 6, verse 27, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. That costs, doesn't it? That costs. 
It's easy to love and bless a friend, but it costs to deny self, to take up your cross and to follow Jesus. But it's only then that we shine. It's only then that the light of Christ shines through us. And it's only through the cross that transformation is possible in our own lives and in the lives of those that we serve. Right? Following Jesus and living the cruciform life is hard. But at the same time, it's easy. Because if you're a believer here today, and as I've said before, you have his own spirit living inside of you. And therefore, you can ask him to empower you. He's the one who gives us the love. It comes from him. And all you have to do, all I have to do, is to surrender everything to him. Surrender it to him. Your whole life, the whole outfit, give it all to him, and then allow him to love people through you. That's why it's easy. You surrender everything to him. Who does he want to love through you this week? Today, Eve. So for some of us, it's going to start right now, as soon as we get home. Who does he want you to love? Listen, last quote, last thing. Dr. Martin Luther King said, every genuine expression of love grows out of a consistent and total surrender to God. Every genuine expression of love grows out of a consistent, this is a daily and total surrender to God.